cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Hi, I'm Jen Cochran. Welcome to Episode 10 of the Cancer Cliff Notes. My guest this week is Christina Cotless. She's a brain cancer survivor, mother, homeschooler, and business owner, in addition to having her first book coming out this year. She teaches writing classes, volunteers with her church, and enjoys driving her minivan like an overscheduled Uber driver for her kids. You can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and she'll even come to you if the coffee's good. I'm happy to say that she is here with me today to share her story and this wild ride that is a cancer journey. Well, welcome, Christina. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We were talking earlier about how primary brain tumors are really the lowest incidence in terms of type of cancer. Really looking forward to having you share your journey. So yeah, with my particular type, it's called an ependymoma. There's a lot of different types of primary brain tumors. And there are some like your meningiomas that are, I had someone describe it once as like a brain pimple where you pop it out and you're fine. But the interesting part about any type of a brain tumor, I look at as being very serious because you have something growing in a very limited amount of space because your skull is pretty fixed. And so anything that is growing in there is impacting your brain, regardless of whether or not it's considered cancerous, whether or not it's considered benign by sheer fact that it's growing in your brain, it's trying to kill you. So there's that aspect of it. But then there's some big, scary brain tumors that i That's how I refer to them. And so with those, I'm talking about like astrocytomas and glioblastomas. And those are things like John McCain had a glioblastoma. And I think everyone can remember his story in the news. And from the time he announced to the time that he passed away was sadly not very long. And that's not uncommon in glioblastoma patients. I was very fortunate in terms of brain cancer to be diagnosed with an ependymoma. Depending on whose statistics you're using, less than 2% of adults gliomas are ependymomas. And my initial diagnosis in 2013 was in my brain, in the posterior fossa region of the brain, which is like right around your brainstem. The reason I knew that I had it was because when I laid on my stomach, this is going to sound like a ridiculous complaint, but when I laid on my stomach to read, my eyes would go black. It's it's a really random complaint. It ended up being hydrocephalus, which is when the spinal fluid gets stuck in your brain and kind of creates a bubble. And so when I was laying down like that, it was allowing the cerebrospinal fluid to move in such a way that it was getting blocked. And then that blockage was causing my eyes to go black. So I went to, um, you know, various different doctors as I started having more pain and was told for my age, which was 29 at the time, that I was having migraines and I basically needed to man up. So I tried really hard to man up and then went about another like 10 months from when I first started having symptoms to when I finally had the day where I got up to help my kids get ready for hockey and passed out in the hallway. And that was the hydrocephalus just causing my brain not to be able to function anymore. And I ended up with a really great neurologist who told me it probably was um, something called complicated migraines, which are just migraines that have a lot more symptoms than pain and sensitivity to light. But she was going to order an MRI and we were going to check and she gave me a lot of hope about, you know, we'll find medicine that works for you. I'm to get you through this. We're going to get your life back. But when I went in for the MRI, we found out that I had actually grown basically a grapefruit in the back of my brain. So it wasn't migraines and we were going to need to deal with that. 
So what I ended up doing was researching doctors and surgeons in my area. And we interviewed a bunch. We went to Johns Hopkins and we went to Georgetown University. We went one other place. Oh, our local like Inova uh, Fairfax. And we talked to surgeons and we talked to oncology teams. And what we ended up deciding was that we wanted to have the surgery at Georgetown. We met Dr. Nyer over there who was amazing and was really special to me because he included me in decisions about my treatment, which sounds funny. Like I had a brain tumor. And so really the only option was take it out. But he did offer me like, you can do nothing. You, you will most assuredly die in a lot of pain, but you can choose to do nothing. We could do radiation, but on something the size of the tumor that you've grown, you're looking at serious mental and physical deficits to make any kind of an impact, or we can take it out. And it was so important to me in that moment in time to have someone tell me I had choices that he was the surgeon we decided to go with. So I had a 16-hour brain surgery. Really anything over 12, you're supposed to have serious deficits, but we were just very blessed in that I was able to leave the hospital about a week after having this surgery. They had originally told my family that I was going to be looking at time in the hospital to the tune of a month and then probably time in a rehabilitation facility. And I was able to skip all of that and just go straight home, which was amazing. My brother's a physical therapist and he helped me do a lot of, you know, regaining skills and really the only deficits that I still have at this point are I have left side neuropathy, which basically means that the left side of my body feels like it's asleep all the time, but you can't tell to look at me. And so I've been very blessed with that. After that, we ended up going down to Duke and Duke Cancer Center is just amazing. I can't say enough good things about Duke and their brain tumor center and the people that run it. So we ended up down at Duke and we did six weeks of radiation therapy. And the hard part about that as a brain tumor patient is that with other cancers, like nothing is ever a walk in the park with cancer, right? Like you can't say one's better than the other. But I, I know from friends that have had breast cancer or things like that, aside from a sunburn, the radiation's not as bad as the chemo, but with brain radiation, you really deal with a lot of severe fatigue and brain fog. And I actually got to the point over the six weeks where even drinking something through a straw was just too much effort. Like I couldn't even fathom that much effort. I was so exhausted. So that was difficult, but we did it. And we were told that that was probably buying us seven to 10 years. And then unfortunately in 2017, I started having really severe back pain and went through a period of trying to get an MRI for that. The standard of care with ependymoma patients is actually full brain, full spine MRIs for 10 years. And my insurance decided that since I hadn't had an initial occurrence in my spine, they weren't going to cover spine MRIs. I ended up having to fight through a spine center and go in for a car accident that may or may not have actually happened to get the spine MRI. And when they did it, they figured out that I had actually had pretty significant disease growth in that time that I'd been fighting with insurance. So I had several larger tumors growing in my spine. And then I had what they described as a spray of tumor cells on this area called the cauda equina, which literally means horse hairs and it's the bottom part of your spine where you have all of these nerve endings. The bad part about this is that with a pneumoma patient, your best outcome is 
surgical removal. And with that part of your spine, they really can't remove it without taking away your ability to do things like walk and use the bathroom and all of these things that most of us would like to be able to do. And actually at the point that I went in, they couldn't believe I was still walking and still able to have like control of my faculties because the the tumor growth was that extensive. We started off at Georgetown again and they kind of had a kind of a bleak outlook on it like, you know, this is this is pretty much this is what's going to get you. And it, we're not talking weeks, but this is it. And we were not huge fans of that response. Still didn't like the radiation oncologist there. I'm sure he's a great guy. He just didn't jive with our family. And we ended up going to NIH and meeting with Mark Gilbert, who's the head of the CERN Foundation, which is the Collaborative Ependymoma Research Network and has, from all accounts I read online, saved tons of people's lives with ependymomas. And he was great and warm and we liked him. And he wanted to do proton therapy, which is like the new latest and greatest in radiation therapy, of course, but no chemo. And then we went back to Duke and met with the oncologist there, uh, Dr. Anique Desjardins, who is my oncologist now. And she really wanted to kind of come at this with everything that we had available and to do chemotherapy in addition to radiation. And so I ended up doing oral temozolomide or temidar in conjunction with radiation. So we really used the temozolomide as a radiation enhancer. And then following that radiation, I did a year of daily oral temidar to basically poke at any remaining tumor cells and kind of get them to go away. And my thought process there, even though the proton therapy is supposed to be much less damaging to your body, was that I wanted to be able to look in the mirror at the end of treatment and say, like, I really gave this everything I possibly could. And I know it sounds crazy probably to most people to decide that you want to take the chemotherapy when you have a less invasive damaging option. But I really wanted to be able to finish treatment and be like, I did everything I possibly could to get this to go away. So if it comes back again, it's not because I left anything on the table. And so that was what we ended up doing. So I finished daily chemotherapy in August and I go back in for scans. And right now, thank God, everything has been great looking. So that's kind of where I am. I'm in that that period of holding. Unlike many cancers, you are not considered to be actually like cured of brain cancer until your 10 years of clean scans. But of course, since mine moved, I'm really more of like a chronic kind of a cancer patient. So it's something we'll be watching for the rest of my life. If it comes back, we'll you know, hit it with another round and and see what we can do there. So that's kind of where I am and and what I've walked through. And um, I've felt very fortunate to have the doctors that I have and the support of the Duke Brain Tumor Center and to be able to just, you know, keep being here and, and telling other people that they can fight through too. I'm a huge proponent of choice. We have, there's so many decisions that get made in this process and Mm-hmm. It's the most important part of the process is to feel strong in the choices that we make, whether Absolutely. they make sense to other people or not. And oftentimes they don't make sense to other people. And that's absolutely okay because it's not their journey, right? Yes, absolutely. You need to make those decisions on your own. And But I had a a friend at the beginning of treatment who told me that she would never do radiation. She would never do chemotherapy. She couldn't imagine doing those things to her body. And she was a big proponent of like going to Mexico and getting coffee enemas and 
eating a vegan macrobiotic diet. And I was like, I hope you never have to know if you would actually do this. And lo and behold, several years later, actually one of her children became sick and ended up on chemotherapy. Like the, the point of that story isn't I was right and she was wrong. The point of that story is until you are literally facing the exact same diagnosis as someone else, you don't know what you would choose. Right. And so when you're staring down the the barrel of your own mortality, things look a lot different than they do in the abstract sense. Like, well, if I had brain cancer or breast cancer, lymphoma, I would do X, Y, or Z. looks a lot different when you actually are doing it. So I think that's important to remember. That is so important to remember. I was in the middle to the end of my chemo treatments and I was at a meeting and someone was introducing me to a radio person and said, oh, Jen's story is so great and she's so positive and she just keeps showing up and which was really sweet. And that person looked at me and said, oh, have you changed how you eat? Do you exercise Mm -hmm. more? Like he just kept asking me these questions and I looked at him and I said, actually, I've been gluten and dairy free for seven or eight years and I teach people how to move for a living. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, no, haven't, haven't improved, you know, haven't done anything with my exercise. I was pretty on point. I was super healthy. I just had this little problem called cancer. It's funny because I've actually said that before. Like when you have to, after cancer, go to like a new general practitioner or something, or if you end up in urgent care for some reason and you've got to give your background, I'm always like, I am extremely healthy aside from this cancer. Like healthy as a horse, aside from the whole brain tumor thing. But it's interesting. And I can't decide. I mean, I've lived my whole life basically with the internet being a thing, but I can't decide it's because of the internet that people are like this. But I've really found there are a lot of people that seem to magically have a medical degree when you tell them that you have cancer. And I don't know where they're getting these medical degrees from because the last time I checked, they were like the front desk lady at my gym and not, you know, a doctor at a cancer center, but they very quickly want to ask you, yeah, like, well, are you eating organic? Do you paint your nails? Do you use organic cleaning? Like, you have no clue why I got this. And if you did, it's really selfish of you not to share because no one knows why people get ependymomas. So if you know why people are getting this and you've just been like working behind the front desk here instead of leading, you know, the battle against this disease, I'm a little upset at you. But otherwise, I feel like maybe just like, I'm sorry, this is happening to you. And that's a really good response. Absolutely. There is a lot of that armchair uh, doctoring that happens. And the reality is, and you put this perfectly, probably 90% of the time, we don't know the causal factor. There are so many potential Mm -hmm. causal factors in every case that unless we have a distinct genetic marker that says, Yes. yes, that we've linked this genetic marker to this type of cancer. It is very difficult to know the why. And I think too often we spend that time trying to figure out the why. And Mm -hmm. the reality is it doesn't matter. No, there's nothing we can do about it now. Like we can't go back at this point and make that genetic marker or that, you know, one time that you took an extra Benadryl or whatever it is. Like we can't go back and take that away. So we just have to deal with the reality of what is happening right now. Yes. Very well said. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your experience because you use so many different organizations, so many different Mm -hmm. medical facilities in your treatment. And I think that's really important. The whole self-advocacy piece is super important. Yes. I'd like to 
to circle back on that when we come back from the break. So we will be right back. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Hi, we're back. I'm here with Christina and we're talking about her journey with brain cancer. We were talking in the first segment about her different healthcare providers and the different organizations that she worked with. And I would love for you to share with the listeners a little bit about how you made those choices. I think very often we view medical professionals as as somewhat omniscient. And the reality mm-hmm. is, if they were omniscient, we'd all be well. Yes, <laughs> that is such a good point. I think a lot of times people are almost afraid to advocate for themselves to their own healthcare teams. And you really need to get to a point where you realize that you are not the focal point of the team. You are the captain. With my diagnosis both times, I like this was about me hiring people. Like I know a lot of times people go in and they go to a doctor and the doctor tells them what to do and they do those things. And for me, I looked at it a lot more like I have this problem I need to take care of and I'm going to hire the best possible team. And you need to remember that healthcare is not cheap in this country. I think every time I get a full brain, full spine MRI, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $37,000. I am bringing a lot of money and a lot of resources for whatever medical center I go to, to the table. And as such, like I'm not there to tell the doctors how to do their job, but I am there to make sure that I'm hiring a team of professionals who have my best interests and what I want to do with my life in mind. So I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm fighting for care that I want to get. With my first diagnosis, I mentioned that we looked at doctors at Georgetown and Hopkins. It was really easy to make that decision. Hopkins is a great medical facility. It's great for so many people that I know, but from soup to nuts, it was wrong for us. They they lost our paperwork and the surgeon was like, we can just pop in a shunt and we can do your surgery when I get back from my speaking tour. And I was like, like, oh, I absolutely do not want that. The surgeon at Georgetown had cleared his schedule for the next week. He was like, we're going to get this out because I don't want it to get any bigger. With brain tumors, you really can't know what you're dealing with until you actually have a biopsy. Like you can tell what you think it is. But I've known a lot of people over the course of my treatment who were told they had a meningioma. And when they got it out and actually biopsied it, it was an astrocytoma. And they lost months waiting for a surgery for a benign tumor that was actually very much not. So we ended up going with Georgetown. And then after my surgery, we met with the oncologist there and we loved her, Deepa Supermanium. She's a wonderful woman. She's a wonderful doctor. We liked her and her demeanor and her nurse Charlotte. And then when we met with the radiation oncologist, we just didn't vibe with him. Like I didn't feel like he remembered who I was. I, I didn't feel like he was talking to me as a person. And I know a lot of people that are very happy with him, but he was not my doctor and that's okay. When we went down to Duke, we met the radiation oncologist down there, Dr. John Kirkpatrick. He is amazing. He wears radiation symbol cufflinks, and he he joked with me, and he talked to me about his machinery and told me about the accuracy, and when I asked questions, he answered me like a colleague and not like, I think a lot of times when you have cancer, you get to this point where people are talking to you almost like you're a kid at the pediatrician's office, and I did not want to be a kid at the pediatrician's office. Like, I wanted on the team. He answered my questions, and if I asked for more information. He gave it to me and he was very good at striking that balance between like, I know you don't have a medical degree, but this is also your life. So I'm going to give you as much information as you want. 
And I was like, great. So I'm going to keep my oncologist at Georgetown, who I like very much, and I'm going to come down here and get radiation. And you guys are going to work together. I know that you have a, an oncologist down here that you would prefer that I work with, but I'm not interested. So this is what's going to happen. And I think we had talked initially about how I kind of viewed it as my husband comes from a divorce situation. And when he graduated from college, mom and dad both had to be there with stepdad and stepmom and everyone had to get along because it was his party. And that's kind of how I looked at this. Like everyone can put on their big girl panties and deal with each other. You're all professionals. You're all respected medical minds. And I'm going to need you to get on my team and we're going to all work together because this is my party and you guys are the ones I'm bringing. You can do that. I tell people all the time, like, they'll be like, well, I'm not really sure what the doctor's thinking or the doctor thinks I can wait two weeks for an MRI. No, that's cute. You have the right as the patient and the person who's bringing, I mean, at this point, for me, millions of dollars have gotten into my care. And if you were going to spend millions of dollars getting your house upgraded, or if you were going to go buy a Tesla for you know several hundred thousand dollars, you would not sit around and let the dealership tell you what to do. It's the same thing with your medical care. I am bringing millions of dollars into these facilities. So if I feel like I need an MRI tomorrow and they're telling me to wait a month, it's just not going to work for me. And I know that's not how people are used to thinking of medical care, but it's the truth. Like this day and age, if you are coming in with health insurance and you are bringing in millions of dollars of money over the course of, you know, my treatment, I think that I should be able to kick a little if I need to. And so in this case, I wanted two doctors to work together from different facilities. And that was what was going to happen. When I was re-diagnosed, we interviewed everyone again. We went and heard what people wanted to do. And we ended up deciding that we were going to go back to Duke. We were going to use Dr. Desjardins this time at Duke. And that was what we did. But there was always the option, like this was a, a second incidence. This was, you know, something in my spine and not in my brain. It was a different approach. The thing that ended up making the decision for us that time was that at Georgetown, we needed a biopsy, basically. And the part of my spine that was involved is as I think I mentioned, very delicate. And it would be easy for me to lose function. Because I hadn't lost function, Georgetown really wanted to kind of go ahead and treat it as a grade three. And ependymomas only come in three grades. There's one, two, and three. That's it. They wanted to treat it as a grade three and kind of do less radiation treatment because you're killing a lot of spinal cord when you do that. So you're losing a lot of your ability to generate you know, red blood cells and be able to tolerate chemotherapy later. And right. so what they wanted to do was treat a littler portion with radiation and leave more of my bone marrow intact for the chemotherapy I was going to need. If it had been a grade two, we would have treated the whole spine versus just the lower portion. I was getting from my oncologist, I think we could really push the surgeon. We could make the surgeon do this. And even if he doesn't, I think we could push radiation oncologists. We could make him do this. And I was kind of in a place where I was like, I don't want to have to make the surgeon go into my spine if he's not confident that he can. You know, I don't, I don't want to make that decision. Now, I, I very much want to advocate for my own care, but if he's telling me he can't do this, I'm going to believe him. It's not the it, right course of action. I absolutely right. feel you. And I, I mean this with as much respect as I could possibly muster. All surgeons have a little bit of narcissism and God complex. Like you have to, if you're going to cut into people, right? If one surgeon tells you no, but you really feel like you need that surgery done, there is someone out there who is crazy enough to think he is the man or she is the woman for the job. Absolutely. And so 
when we got down to Duke, there's two Dr. Friedmans at Duke. The, the surgeon, Dr. Friedman, was, I mean, if the radiation oncologist wants a biopsy, let's cut you open and get one out. No big deal. They did the biopsy, and I know that they came out and told my husband that it looked like a grade three, but, you know, you could never tell until you got it frozen and under the microscope, and lo and behold, it was a grade two. That meant we got to do way more radiation, and this was great because the part of my brain that we had treated with radiation before, nothing grew back. So my particular type of ependymoma is highly receptive to radiation therapy. So if I had just gone with the plan of treating the bottom part of my spine, I would have given up on the opportunity to get rid of so much more of the cancer based on a hunch rather than based on knowledge. I'm really glad that, you know, that I took the time to talk to these doctors to figure out the plan to figure out what the right thing was, even though in in the moment, every second that you're waiting to get started feels like an eternity. You want to be fighting back against this thing, like you want to be doing something. And so all of the waiting is torturous, but it was worth doing in this case because at this point, my scans look clear. Had we only treated the bottom part of my spine, there was an entire tumor we would not have even touched. And I would have given up on that option. So I'm really glad that we did it. And Mm -hmm. from that perspective, the waiting is really excruciating. And too often we think, well, someone's on it. They're doing what needs to get done. And sometimes they're not. And it's not because you're not important. It's because they're overwhelmed or they have 300 cases. And we need to be that advocate and be that advocate of these are the things going on in my body. This is how my body has reacted in the past. That is so important. The ability that you had to get that radiation knowing and the peace that must have come with that knowledge. Well, the last time I responded really well and I feel confident that I'm going to respond really well. And isn't this great that I'm able to do the bigger thing? We talked earlier about how people then have opinions Mm-hmm. about your choices or how you are moving through your choices. Basically, people just have opinions. And you and I had talked earlier about identifying safe people and yes. what that looks like in this new world of a cancer diagnosis, because it is not yeah. the same. No. And people that you always thought were safe people are suddenly not. I think there's a couple of aspects to this. First of all, I think just like you are an advocate for yourself with your doctors, I think you have to be an advocate for yourself with the people around you. Sometimes look like you being a little bit maybe more curt or rude than you would be normally. If someone starts off with, I read on the internet, I'm sorry, we're not talking about this. I don't have time for this in my life. Right. And I I think that it's important. I mean, anyone that's had cancer knows that the currency that you have to really give people isn't money at time. We're all working with a limited amount of time. And it's an interesting thing where it's kind of like if you've ever been at Target and it's almost payday, you go to checkout and you're like, I hope there's enough in my account. That's kind of what we're all working with. None of us knows how much time we have, but I'm not going to waste the time that I do have in my account on people saying things that are hurtful to me. And so it's important to surround yourself with people that are safe. And that looks like a couple of different things. But one of the biggest ones is finding people that can handle the truth. And I like I sound a little bit like Jack Nicholson right now, right? Like you can't handle the truth. But there are people it's that very can't. True, they just can't. And you need people that know. And and we talked about this a little bit. Cancer is not strep throat. You don't take antibiotics for 48 hours. Snap, you're better. It is a 
process. And even when you finish treatment, you're still not better because you have just literally been like atomic bombing your body for several months. Yes. And getting that back is hard. And there are people that show up what I what I refer to as the project portion, like you're in chemotherapy, you're in active radiation, and it's great. And you need those people that like came for the party. They came to be part of what was happening in this crisis moment in your life. But then once treatment's done, those people disappear and you can almost feel like they didn't care about you at all. You were just a project, which may or may not be true, but those aren't your safe people. Your safe people are the ones you can call and say, listen, I know I'm six months post-treatment, but I feel terrible today. I can't get out of bed. I'm so exhausted. Why can't I feel normal yet? And you need someone to listen to you say all those things and be like, okay, this sucks. I'm sorry it sucks. And if you want me to come watch Netflix with you for today, we can do that. And then tomorrow it's going to be a new day and it's going to be better. You need that person in your life, even if it's only one. But that's why it's great if you can surround yourself with survivors. My godmother had breast cancer. She's a long-term survivor of breast cancer. But surrounding herself with other breast cancer survivors was great for her. It's a little harder with brain cancer. We talked about the relatively low five-year progression-free survival rates. Like there's less of us that make it kind of more long-term. But I've found a lot of people that were caregivers. One of my best friends, Lisa Hill-Sutton, her first husband and her current husband's first wife both passed away from brain cancer. And they have just been rocks for me and are not afraid of me being like, this is what my MRI said. This is what this potential treatment looks like. Like they are not afraid of those things. They have walked that road. And so for me, they've been my people that I can call at two in the morning and be like, I have an MRI tomorrow and I'm not okay. I am scared because anxiety is so real. It is. Um, it, it's bad, right? Like it doesn't matter how many of you, I don't care how many scans you've had. Going in for a scan is scary. And they're my safe people. They're the people I can call and say, hey, this is coming up tomorrow. And they know they understand that fear and they understand it doesn't go away. So you have to make sure you find those people and not the people that want to challenge you on becoming vegan because no one who's vegan ever gets cancer. Or the people that are like, I read about this oil you can order from Canada. I can't. I don't have time for you in my life. And and this is, again, this goes back to it being your team. I hope you never have to find out what you would do if you actually had brain cancer. But right now, this is my story. So you don't get to dictate how the chapters go. I decided that I'm doing radiation and chemotherapy and you can be here to be part of that process or you can like sit on the bench and wait for this part to be over. You're on my team or you can ride the bench. You've already done that because you interviewed your doctors and they were the people that that get to participate in that conversation. Absolutely. Yep. And it's hard. It's hard because you're already tired. You're already scared. And it sucks that you have to have these conversations with people. You know, I, I gave the example of how tired I was during radiation the first time with the brain radiation. Spine radiation was actually a walk at the park comparatively. But I had a friend that trying to be supportive would text me saying, you're getting better every day, but I was getting weaker every day. And that text message was like having someone stab me in the heart every time I got it. And I tried to hint about it. And I tried to, you know, be like, actually, I like I'm feeling terrible. And I finally just had to be very honest with her and be like, listen, you're literally like ripping my soul in half every time you send this and you have to stop. And it's not something I ever would have said to someone previously, but you have this finite amount of sanity to to deal with when you're in the middle of a cancer treatment process. It is okay for you to be like, I can't spend this little portion of my sanity worrying about 
this other person's feelings. It's okay to do that. And it's okay to know, you know, if you've got your aunt who is constantly sending you emails with the latest internet hoax that she read about curing cancer with Garcinia Cambodia or whatever, it's okay for you to stop reading those emails because again, this is your game your team. And if she's not on it, you can, you know what, she can keep sending those to your inbox and you can make a special folder for them and they will be there if and when you feel like dealing with them later, but you don't have to do it today. Yeah. There's definitely, I don't want to say that it's a shorter fuse, but there is a lot less tolerance for other people's BS. I think when we've gone through any kind of journey like this, especially when it comes to opinions around what we should eat what treatments we're having and all of those things, more of a nod to just telling the truth. And I think too often in our society right now, we need to be politically correct and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And the reality is sometimes you just have to tell the truth. Sometimes you do have to tell the truth. And if, you know, I am, I am a big advocate of speaking truth in love, but there's also a point where some people need you to just speak truth. And yes. like the love part, you tried the love, it didn't help. So right. sometimes you've got to just speak truth. And I, I will say on the flip side, that once you come out of this experience, you are such a better person for the awful things that people have said to you. <laughs> um, and I know that's not helpful when you're in the midst of it. But, you know, I went over yesterday, I actually had the opportunity to go and sit with my neighbor who just had twins and, um, and kind of be with her and help her out for the day. Be able, when she was like, well, people are telling me this and people are telling me that, be able to be like, it's okay if right now this sucks. Like you just had a major surgery. It's okay. It's okay for you not to be like falling over with joy at this moment because you've been through a lot. It's okay. And, you know, being able to validate someone else's feelings and not try to give them platitudes makes you a better person. And, and knowing that being, that's normal, that it's yes, normal and, to be tired and your body is healing and yeah. You have two little people instead of one little person. I mean, there are yes. people that come home with one little person that have been through what she's been through are overwhelmed and tired. Yes. Those are the things that we don't talk about. We don't talk about the challenges and surviving you alluded to it before. Getting yeah. treatment is the beginning. It is. Recovering so the from the treatment is what no one prepares you for. They don't. And you know, I have a friend who just finished her breast cancer treatment and I actually had taken a step back. I had been the person in her life that took a step back when she was diagnosed. I saw everyone jumping in with the meal trains and the this and that, that and the other. Day that she posted on Facebook that she was done with her treatment, I called her and was like, hey girl, this is my part. This is where I pick you up because now everyone loses interest Yep. and you're not done. And I want you to know that the back 40, that's my jam. I am here for the scan. I am here for the days that randomly you just don't feel good. I'm here when six months out, emo gives you some weird symptom and like you can't feel your fingers anymore. I am here for all of that stuff. It's so important. And that's the thing, like being through it, you are a better person because you know that. Being through it, you're the person that can sit next to someone and just be like, yes, this sucks. And you don't have to say anything else. You don't have to make them feel better. You can just right. be with them in the suck of it all. And sometimes and, just saying you're totally normal. Yes. This is totally normal because we start to feel like, shouldn't I be better? 
And the reality mm-hmm. is, I remember someone saying to me before I went in for surgery, and that was before I even knew like what my chemo, like what that whole journey was going to look like. And I remember her saying, oh, in two years, you're be- you'll be normal again. I was like, what? What? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean two mm-hmm. years? Are you kidding me? She never said anything else. Just it'll take you around two years to feel normal again. And I was like, huh? <laughs> Come again? Well, and I think there's something to be said for too. And this is this is something I'm a big advocate of. I don't want to be the person that I was before, and that's okay too. And that's that's not about how I feel. That's not like can I go out and run a marathon tomorrow. That's I want to have learned more and experienced more and be more compassionate with people in similar situations. Like I don't want to go back to the person I was when I was 28 and not having symptoms. I want to embrace the things that have happened to me, and I want to be better than I was before. That doesn't necessarily mean physically fitter or like I have no symptoms or I have no scars. I want to embrace all of those things and I want to be a better person because of what I've experienced and what I've lived through. Absolutely. It makes us take stock of Mm -hmm. what are we doing? How are we living? Are we living? I think a lot of people are kind of going through the motions. You get a diagnosis and it's like, okay, what do I want to get from this life? And what do I want to contribute to this life? And, you know, where is the intersection of those two things? I see a lot of people that really start, you know, they're super committed to their job and then they have their second treatment and someone asks them for something ridiculous that just isn't really that important. And it's a wake up call. I think if we approach it from a curious perspective to find the joy and the positive attributes of the journey I think that's where a lot of the gold is. It is. It absolutely is where a lot of the gold is. And it takes discipline to do that. It sounds strange to talk about it taking discipline to look for the joy, but it really can. Sometimes it's about sitting down and being like, okay, literally today, what did we see as a blessing? And that's something we've done with our kids, especially through my second diagnosis was we are going to do everything we can. We will acknowledge upfront that this stinks. I'm sorry we have to do this again, but we are literally going to spend time looking for the goodness that God has for us. We are going to spend time looking for the blessings that come into our life because of this. And we are going to find the joy in the midst of the suffering. And that's what we're going to commit ourselves to. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And it is amazing how quickly the time goes during these shows. So we are coming up on the, the end of our time. So I would love for you to share a little bit about your upcoming book, when yes, people will you. be able to get that and, and where and the title and all that great information. Sure. Well, you can visit me online at Christina Kotlis. It's K-O-T-L-U-S and Christina with a K. Dot com um, for more information, but the book is called I Quit, and it is about really kind of giving yourself over to the plans that God has for you as you're going through this process. And there's a lot more about you know what I went through, and if you are someone that enjoys a lot of straight talk and humor, then I hope you will pick the book up and that it will inspire you to keep going because I know that no matter what your diagnosis or your situation is, you can do this by relying on you know your faith and your family and the, the people that come along you as friends in this process. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here with me today. There are so many other things that we could chat about. We will definitely have to talk again. That would be great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Christina for chatting with me today. It never ceases to amaze me, regardless of the types of cancer, the severity of the diagnosis, 
The similarities my guests all talk about in navigating the new normal post-active treatment, or as Christina called it, the project phase, are undeniable. There were so many important topics that we talked about today, and for this week's Personal Consciousness Minute, I want to focus on truth. I was listening to an audio program recently called The Anatomy of Health with Caroline Mays. Over and over, she essentially says, we've stopped telling the truth. We sugarcoat it. We frame it in feeling words to soften the delivery, but we do not flat out tell the truth for fear that saying what we actually mean will not be well received. We've got to stop doing this. How many times this week have you not been honest with yourself? Maybe you don't really like that restaurant, but that's where others want to go, so rather than float the idea of a different option, you just go along. And sometimes that's the right thing. And sometimes it's not. Maybe you're not sharing the challenging feedback to avoid a potential conflict. This is a really juicy one. One of the reasons my husband and I have a great relationship is we communicate. Life is not perfect all the time. It just isn't. We all come to situations with our own stuff. And that's okay. Christina put it perfectly when talking about her friend sending what her friend thought was encouragement. And really, it was crushing Christina's soul. Sometimes we have to flat out say, Hey, I'm struggling here, and I know you mean well. However, right now, it's just not working for me, so please stop. And there's no apology necessary. We can tell the truth and be kind and not have to apologize. My challenge for you this week is to look at where you're sugarcoating it. Is that working for you? And if not, how can you kindly yet directly address the issue and speak your truth? So that's the challenge for this week. Hop on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group where you can join in the conversation, catch up on old episodes, and connect with other folks who are traveling a similar journey. I look forward to seeing you there. Have a great week and thanks for listening. 